0: Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast, brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales, entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for gravitas.
1: Imagine starting your career as a draftsman in automotive in the UK, and then you become the CEO of one of the most iconic car companies on the planet. The car company is Aston Martin. The guy is Andy Palmer. Andy shares his leadership journey that takes him from the more aggressive style of leadership that we saw in the industry in the early 80s through to his experience in Japan with Nissan. He spent 13 years in Japan and how he's taken the best of all of that leadership experience to become who he is today. He openly shares his vulnerabilities, what he does to deal with those vulnerabilities, how he inspires a team, how he galvanizes a team around a mission. We talk about the most inspiring experience that he's had on a team. We talk about Napoleon versus Wellington and a whole lot more. Enjoy. Andy, welcome to the show.
2: Good. uh, I should say good afternoon or good morning, but uh, hello. It's nice to see you, and it's a pleasure to be on the show.
1: (laughs) Lovely. So, Andy, let's get straight to it. What's your story?
2: My story? Well, um, I suppose from a career perspective, I started in the auto industry 41 years ago. Um, Boy, time has flown. Um, I left school at 15. I didn't much enjoy school, if truth be known. And I started in an, an apprenticeship at um, 16. I wanted, I wanted since I was about 14 years old and my father bought me a, an A-series engine to assemble and disassemble, I wanted to be an auto engineer. So for me, the quickest way from A to Z was basically to, to go into an apprenticeship. Um, and And I did that at a company called Automotive Products. They made clutches and brakes and gearboxes. Four years later, um, and with, um, with with the apprentice uh, examinations done, I became a draftsman and then a, a project engineer in the advanced engineering department working on uh, DCT gearboxes, uh, dual clutch. Um, decided to do um, a degree, a management degree, um, part-time as I came out of my apprenticeships. And that was actually spawned by... Some some of your listeners may be old enough to remember Red Robbo and all of the wildcat strikes that happened in the UK um, in the early eighties, and I, I was inspired by just how bad management was at that time, and in dealing with the unions and dealing with grievances, and I sort of set upon this ambition of being wanting to be a chief executive of an auto company at some point in my future which drove me for the majority of those, uh, those 41 years. Um, got my degree in industrial management, uh, used it as a platform to get employed at Austin Rover, or Rover, or British Leyland, or all of the other names they got called over the, over the period. Um, in, in, in powertrain, so I, first of all, was um, partly responsible for the development of the K-series engine. Um, uh, then I, I went across into the transmissions area, and eventually became chief engineer after five years for um, for the transmissions, both product design and manufacturing. Um, Rover, because of the way that it was set up, wanted uh, any of their any of their high, high-circled high-flyers to uh, have a degree. They didn't, uh, they didn't think that a management degree was adequate. So they were good enough to put me on to a, a master's degree in engineering, which I did at Warwick University. Um, if I take you back to the, the uh, late 80s, you'll remember that uh, the Japanese were coming into auto and, and blitzing everything uh, They was so good. And Rover was working with Honda at the time, and I was lucky enough to be part of that, that interface team. There was also a book that was called The Machine That Changed the World, yeah. uh, which uh, inspired me as a book. And and I figured out that I needed to spend probably three to five years in a Japanese company to learn everything that they, they did and then bring it back. Um and you know, strategy was a bit flawed as, as you as you'll discover. But the um I, I had a chance to go across to Nissan in the setup of the Nissan Technical Center, born out of the facility in Sunderland, and help set that technical center up for Europe. So uh after um oh eight years, I suppose. I became head of the head, the chief engineer, the head engineer um, for Nissan in Europe, and I think at the time probably uh, one of the most uh, senior uh, non-Japanese guys. Um, so yes, I went across. As you can tell, I went to, the, the the three-year, five-year plan didn't work because I was ten years in in Nissan in Europe, and then the Nissan relationship with Renault was born. Essentially, a takeover of, by by Renault, and um, with it very quickly, Mr. Gohen uh, recognised he had a failing business in light commercial vehicles, and I was given two weeks' notice to uh, go and transport myself and live in Japan, um, which was, frankly, in in spite of the the uh, speed with which it was done, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, the opportunity to experience a different culture. Uh, and I, was 13, I lived 13 years in Japan, initially uh, running the light commercial vehicle business, then being promoted to uh, to the uh, executive vice chairman of, of planning, which grew into include sales, marketing, infinity, zero emissions, IT, um, many of the functions in Japan. And uh, latterly in 2013, saw me being promoted to uh, chief operating officer. Um, of, of the group, of course, reporting directly to Mr. Gown. Um It became obvious uh, that I was never going to make the CEO job. Um, Mr. Gown had made it very clear that a future, future leader would be Japanese and the future leader in, in Renault would be French. And uh, I don't have either of those passports. So um, as these things tend to happen in one's career, almost the next day I had a call from uh, the owners of Aston Martin saying, "Would you like to become the chief exec of, of aston martin and the idea of taking what was then thirty five years of automotive knowledge, taking it back to really the village next door to the one that I went to school in, uh, taking that skills back home, going with what was essentially the last British car company uh, it's still still in in private hands that that that, that Inspired me to go back and try, and um, basically, I had four of the, the the best years I've ever had where we were able to to recreate the portfolio, start the planning and the and the execution of the first uh, SUV, and take the company public. I have to say, after having taken the company public, it became quite difficult. We entered into a quite difficult phase, nevertheless, in that eighteen months of being public, what I learned. And that's, of course, from both the things you did right and the things that you did wrong. But what I learned during that period is, is, is immense and I think equips me very well for the future. Um, I left Aston um, in, in, in May this year and now start to think about a, a future career uh, which is likely to be rooted in, uh, in, in transportation, probably uh, with, a, with a, a very heavy green bias And and as you've already seen, I've taken on the chairmanship of Optair, which is a bus company, uh, but with an ambition to be uh, basically an EV company. So we're in the progress or the process of turning that into something interesting. And I'm sure over the the next 12 months, uh, hopefully I'll be able to announce some of the other things I have ambitions to do.
1: That sounds very exciting indeed. I'm very interested to understand how your leadership style has evolved over time. You know, you mentioned Rover and you take me right back to the farm in Wales when I learned to drive on my father's Rover, which was this beautiful tobacco leaf color, I remember, and the, the smell of those leather seats. It was such a, I mean, it was, it was a tank of a car, right? But it was something that I think a lot of people in Britain aspired to own, right? To have a Rover. It was a lot of prestige to it. Um, but I'm very interested to know how your leadership style has evolved over time so take us back to maybe the the days in uh, British Leyland and compare and contrast to then coming up through Nissan and uh, Aston and where you are today
2: yeah indeed my my leadership style has changed enormously over the years um, and I, I hope for the better and by the way I hope I haven't stopped growing and, and that will that that will continue and I think one of the key points is, is I, I would implore to everybody, don't, don't get stuck in one style. Um, Rover, Austin Rover, British Leyland, all of its evolutions was a difficult environment. Um, it was a very political environment, um, political with a little P, not with a big P. Um, you had to fight for your survival. It was very um, testosterone-driven, if I may um with uh lots of almost hand-to-hand combats and lo- the politics were 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 huge and it was it was about frankly it was about being aggressive um and getting things done by um I- I- if your listeners will forgive me but the jfdi way of uh, of of management's just just <laughs> do it um yeah. and I did well in, in that environment because I must have been a, a hot headed youth that, uh, that, that settled into it. And I, I could shout, and I suppose with some degrees of logic, I could survive in what, what was predominantly uh, a culture born out of manufacturing. And, and obviously, a culture that was shaped through the relationship with the unions, which wasn't particularly great. What was interesting for me was comparing and contrasting that style with With Honda, that we were working with at the time, where the the Honda guys were much more thoughtful and, and clearly took time to make their decisions. There was a, a certain amount of debate, mm. and uh, I would say it wasn't necessarily the person with the loudest voice that was winning the argument. it was usually the person with the most persuasive argument that was winning the argument um, and, and that fascinated me and, and and in two steps you know the first step going into a Nissan company in the United Kingdom having its own culture, which, if you want, was a softer culture, um, very much more about um, consensual uh, discussions, very much about respecting people's expertise, and very much about a very, very strong process, um, a frustration, if you will, in terms of reluctance to break rules, which sometimes you need to break rules. Um, and then the second step, which was in, into Japan and 13 years of living in Japan, um, but even living in Japan, being exposed to a significant amount of time in China, um, shaped a different view. Uh, th- something that I take out of all of that is, uh, is that consensus or consensus forming, uh, what, it, what in, in the Japanese word is, is nemawashi, is really important in terms of leadership. So Perhaps the difference in style, the, 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 what I learned in Rover perhaps was about management, about giving direction. It's a, it's a command and control structure. In Nissan, I learned a lot more about leadership, where it was about uh, taking people with you, giving a general direction, but using the talent of everybody around the table to debate and form the strategy. So it was much more about guidance. Uh, it was much more about inspiring people for their best listening to the quietest person in the room um and bringing together the iq of a team rather than simply the iq of the of the of the leader and i think we made much better much better decisions as a result coming back of course into aston um it was it was a a step back towards the the old uh british form of 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 management hopefully um I, I hope that I made a, a sort of a hybrid of that British um, creativity uh, but singular drive, uh, but harnessed it a little more with, with, the, with the collective and consensual um, opinion-making and strategy-making, which I, I, I hope gives some legacy to, towards Aston Martin. And now I move, of course, to a different, a different way of things. With the, with the chairmanship role. The chairmanship role is different from that of a CEO role. Um, it's, it's more and more about general direction, general, uh, stewardship and support of the chief executive rather than the executive executing the strategies. So it's always well, as I say, there's, uh, hopefully there's, um, uh, hopefully there's life in the old dog and the old dog can learn some new tricks.
1: <laughs> well, that's a, that's such an interesting journey and the way that your leadership style has changed. In the automotive industry, as you well know, there's still a lot of command and control. And there's a sense that if you're not operating with this sort of strength and aggression, that you may be considered weak. And I think that there are some leaders out there who no they want to lead in a much more authentic way that's in line with who they are and and incorporate you know the the ideas of the people of the team and maybe show some vulnerability but the model the leadership model is is telling them to be successful you need to show the people that you are in control that it's about uh, telling people what to do what advice would you give to people at really any level in their career that might be struggling with this,
0: mm.
2: it's tough because undoubtedly uh, the, the, there is a corporate culture in in every company that you're in, and you need to be successful in that company. You you obviously need to know um, how to how to exist in in the, in it and how to be successful, but you know not everybody is comfortable with with command and control, and uh if I could give a tip, because what I often find around the, the 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 real the people that are at the if you want the pinnacle of command and control is that they often don't have the strongest people around them. Um and they often fear having smart people around them. Um what I've found is that you know the best way to succeed, the best way to make good decisions, and eventually. Most people are going to be judged by the results you 're going to get better results if you have good people around you and if you can employ good people around you and you use their skills you you engage their talent you don't fear them because they're actually making you look better um, if that's a if that's a structure you feel comfortable with then then I think generally speaking the collective is always better than the individual i mean there's there's clearly there, there are clearly brilliant individuals but um, I, I haven't yet come across somebody that can do everything uh, and clearly if the, the the sum of the parts are are greater than than one if you get that synergistic effect and you know I'm throwing sort of managerial words at it but but the the reality is if you can engage a team and each member of the team is giving their best and if you're conducting the orchestra in a way that makes it sound as good as it can be there's a pretty good chance that your results are going to be better than the the bully in the next office.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. And Google's project, Aristotle, said exactly that. It supported that multiplier effect, that the, the secret to a high-performance team is really getting to that multiplier effect. It is not just simply the sum of the individual parts. And so often, I think that we look at an organization and we look at silos, right? We look at purchasing, we look at sales, we look at operations, and we say, and the leader says, well, you know, if everybody would just do their job the way they were supposed to, we'd be fine. Actually, no, you could be better than that with the right leadership, caring for people, understanding their needs, really harnessing their full potential. You can get that multiplier effect.
2: I think to some extent, we all know that, don't we? Because at some moment in our careers, almost all of us have been involved in a in a team of some sort, which is we've really enjoyed and we've been really proud of. And and if you haven't been in one of those teams yet, you almost certainly will be in one of them at some point. And generally speaking, those teams are a diversity of people, uh, cross-functional, quite you know, quite often, um, with a singular task in mind. Uh, I know that from my point of view, the one that stands out, um, and I have a. a a trophy of it actually on my wall in my office here. Um, but it was basically uh, matching um, uh, an Austin, uh, an Austin um, Rover transmission to a PSA diesel engine in, um, in a, a metro. And we had 12 weeks to do it. Uh, and it, it involves basically designing and developing a, a new bell housing and, and associated installations. 12 weeks is a ridiculously short time. But by, by bringing together people from different parts of the organization, from purchasing, from, from manufacturing, from engineering, from testing, and everybody basically being focused on, we're not going to allow this to fail. We're going to make it work. Driven by one aim, um, one of the most inspiring teams I've ever worked in. And definitely, the, um, it was worth more than the sum of the parts. No, no question about it. To do something that would normally take two years in, in, in 12 weeks clearly was something you can't repeat continuously, but something very, very special.
1: The Google Project Aristotle claims that the number one success factor for high performance teams is psychological safety. So I'm guessing that the team you just described, everybody felt safe to put their ideas forward to, to show up as their authentic selves, as their true selves. Could you talk a little bit about the psychological safety and how do you get that in a team?
2: Yeah, I, I look and you can never promise more than you can promise. If you're a, if you're a, you know, a mid-ranking uh, manager in an organization, you, you can't promise somebody um, you know, lifetime employment or anything like that. And in fact, even if you're the CEO of a company, you, you probably can't. Uh, promise that. but what you what you can, I suppose, do is, first of all, demonstrate through your own actions that you're not there to simply take the credit for everybody everybody else's hard work. you know t- t- team working is also about team reward uh, and and making sure that your bosses see where the real work is being done. So I think not being selfish about the output, Is 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 very very important, and I think you know security also comes from knowing that you're doing the good job. So I think it's it's the it's the responsibility of the team leader to engage with the team sponsors, the people that sit above the team, so that people can see access to that to the more senior management and know that the thing that they are working on is inspired by, supported by. Uh, valued by uh, the organization as a whole. And, and in some way, that, of course, does bring psychological safety. Um, the other thing I think, and it's the hardest thing in the world, um, and I have to say it was somewhat easier in Japan than it was when I was working in the UK, um, but it's okay to fail. Um, we, we in the UK seem to have a big problem with failure, and it's, it, it sort of sits with you forever. Um, uh, the US is much better at it, and in Japan, as long as you're seen to have done everything possible to avoid the failure, uh, if you got if it was bad luck, it was bad luck and, and it seems, it seems to be put behind you. but that ability during your career to fail, but still be picked up and allowed to to, to try again and of course, absolutely key is learn from that failure, um, the principle of kaizen, um, I think, and to some extent pokeyoke. Um, I think that's really, really valuable. So, so a safe environment where maybe some of the parts of the team uh, are allowed to fail and learn, and, and but you know your job is to make sure that those failures are mitigated and that the overall the team succeeds. And to some extent, you know, developing a new car, uh, wherever it might be, who for whoever it might be, is part of that. You're leading a team. Is developing a new car is is about many, many, many parts and activities. Uh, the overall car can be wonderfully successful, but in getting there, undoubtedly there's been a, a number of failures. And as long as you're not punishing people for those failures, uh, but, but that you're inspiring them to, to inspiring people to learn from it, I think there's value in that failure.
1: And that's where this idea of psychological safety comes from, right? Is that people feel safe, that they can make a mistake, and that it is okay. And innovation, by definition, is uh, trying and failing and trying and failing to get that one idea.
2: It's not innovative if it's not failing, to be frank, because um, you're not pushing hard enough. As a racing driver or a, a very bad racing driver myself, it's the old adage, if you're not spinning, then you're not going fast enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, well said, well said. This team that you described that had a 12-week deadline, did you burn the boats? Did you, because it sounds like there was such a, a, a bone deep commitment to succeed on that team. How did you, you know, somehow that team was convinced that failure was not an option, right? It was going to happen. Yeah. Did you burn the boats? How did you do that?
2: Not, not exactly, because what would have happened if we, uh, if we'd have failed, we, we simply wouldn't have had a, a Metro diesel um, or we wouldn't have had a Metro diesel until, until it was successful. Um, The 12 weeks was driven by the desire to uh, reach the original job one date. Um, I won't go into the details of what happened, but basically the partner of the gearbox dropped out. And um, there was, it was, I think for the team, it was exercising something in, in, I'm sure you know, in the British psyche which is if you're backed into the corner and your backs are against the wall and you're essentially the little guy taking on Goliath, it was, that, that it was nurturing that desire in that team that basically they just wanted to show everybody that they were as good as anybody else, that their, their transmission was as good as anybody else, their ability to get it to market, and to some extent show the bosses that the original decision uh, was the wrong one. So it, it didn't build – and, and I do understand what you, what you mean by some, sometimes in a team, sometimes you do simply need to burn those boats and, and give, give the team no other choice. In, in this case uh, specifically, I think it was about allowing them to show their pride. If you want, it was a certain amount of patriotic pride, pride, pride because the, you know, the, um, the original decision was to use a, a foreign manufacturer.
1: Well, you talk about patriotic pride, you know, I, I am extremely proud of the fact that in your last position, you made a decision to put a manufacturing plant in my home country, in Wales. Yeah,
2: e- even quite close to your hometown, I believe.
1: <laughs> Very <laughs> close indeed. Tell me a little bit about the Welsh culture. Uh, what, what's it like leading uh, a plant installation in the culture in Wales? Um.
2: Yeah, look, um it's been tough economically in Wales, I think it's fair to say. A lot of industry is, has has left Wales and even recently there's a lot of conjecture around the future of things like Tata Steel uh, and other other manufacturing plants. So I think what's interesting about both the Welsh people and the Welsh government is that there is no taking stuff for granted Hmm. there's no easy meal and there's a certain amount of hunger um which maybe in the past was missing when things were a bit more comfortable but right now if you're if you're growing up uh in in wales then you're probably thinking you might even have to leave and go somewhere else in the united kingdom to get a job it's it's tough and what I like about working with the Welsh is that they—they, they, I mean, they, they really did um, knock down walls to make things happen because there was this hunger to—and this hunger times pride. That plate on a DBX that says "Made in Wales" as opposed to saying "Made in the United Kingdom" um, is an enormous is an enormous motivator for the team. And they see it on every car that goes down the track. Um, That times the fact that, you know, if they don't have a job there, then there's a pretty good chance they don't have a job anywhere. Um, It makes it an inspiring group to work with.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Harnessing the spirit of the Welsh dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Okay. uh, We've talked a lot about leadership. As you know, I am always talking about authentic leadership. What is, if you could summarize some of those leadership traits, what is authentic
0: leadership to you? Authenticity. Vulnerability. Honesty. I mean, those are the
2: um, soft words that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily here associated with leaders. But I think by demonstrating vulnerability, demonstrating where you have, if you want, personal weaknesses, um, and looking to the team to compensate for those, um, that's also part of the honesty and the authenticity. Um, And then I think, obviously, there's a certain amount, within that authenticity, there's a certain amount of skills. So Having learned your way through the organisation, having a foundation in something. When I lecture at universities, I always say to the kids, um, you know, basically be be really, really good at something. Um, You might not you might not get to spend all of your career in it, but you've always got that foundation. make those foundations deep. So there's there's I suppose it's the left and the right hand side of the brain, but 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 basically there is on one side. Those psychological things of uh, projecting um, that vulnerability, authenticity, and honesty, and, and 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 at the other side, being a mentor because people know that your 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 decision making is is robust and reliable. And if you can bring those two together, and of course, there's the the, the hygiene factors of things like good communication and language. Um, if you can bring those together in that package, then. There's, there's a reasonably good chance you're going to be a, a good leader. Now your style is going to you're going to evolve it yourself. And you know I'm a, a great believer in in looking at history and determining your style if you want by looking around. One day I'll get around to doing a PhD in uh, in in uh, the history of 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 leadership. But um, if I can give you the the analogy that I love to 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 talk about. Uh, and, and a particular battle that I've read lots about. It's it's basically uh, Napoleon facing Wellington. And the Napoleon style is very much the sort of philosophy of the helicopter, where you sit behind the battleground on the hill, having an oversight of the uh, the, the battle, and then sending your lieutenants down to direct the troops from that high level position nothing wrong with it in fact there's an awful lot right with it because you're giving yourself time to think and direct not my style my style is is very much the style of wellington where wellington would go on his horse to the to the the parts of the battle where where the the front was waning and where it needed support miraculously he never got hurt um, but but basically, he would lead from the front, he would draw his people, and people didn't necessarily like um wellington, but they they were in awe of him they they knew that if he was around, then they were they were unbeatable uh and you know for me, I prefer the latter form, but there are the, you know there are plenty of people that, that the former but I think understanding that there are different different methodologies and even sometimes you can yourself transport between the two methodologies i think is is important and all part of that authenticity
1: you mention vulnerability you're a senior level executive and have been for many many years aren't you concerned that people might see you as weak if you show vulnerability. I know that that's a fear that a lot of leaders had they're afraid to show vulnerability but yet it's a strength uh,
2: look, I look I, I I get it I mean um, um, if you show weakness people will see weakness uh, but the fact is as we we all know you you, you can admire leaders that you or I have worked with, when you get close to them, you find out they're only human and uh, humans are vulnerable. And I think you're a much better leader if you know where your personal vulnerability is, because at least then you can choose the team around you that compensates for it. You know, I'm um, intrinsically quite shy. It might surprise you to hear. Um, I, I don't much care for small talk at parties. Um, Yes, I'm a great believer in management by walkabout. So I used to have uh, um, a guy around me for much of my career. You may know him, Simon Sproul, um, who was the guy that would come in my office and say, Andy, we're going for a walk. And he wouldn't. I mean, he'd just walk. And then, you know, basically, I'd fall into the comfort of of, of talking to, to, to people because I know that's important. And I know when I do it, I like it, but, but I needed someone around me to give me that stimulus. The vulnerability is that I'm, I'm telling you I'm quite a shy individual. Um, but, but, but basically, so you know I don't need to tell you because when I'm talking on, on, on something like this, I won't come across as particularly shy. But that's only the outer shell, the inner shell is, 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 is quite vulnerable in that sense. But isn't it better that your team knows that so that they can compensate for it? I would argue yes.
1: Absolutely. It is a strength, but often hard to see vulnerability as a strength.
2: Yeah. Well, look. It's. A, I suppose it's a. It's a weakness if you're in a political organisation, but but then again, I would. I would use the weakness as a strength, and uh, and and you can you can inspire people to help protect you. So, so yes. Look, I, I think it, it all. It's all part of being an honest. I mean, to be an to be a good leader, I think you need to be honest anyway, and and being honest is also about. Uh, admitting your shortfalls and admitting your mistakes, and I say I underpin that by saying you know i'm a I'm a, I'm a disciple of lean I'm a disciple of Kaizen, so it's okay to make mistakes uh, as long as you learn from them
1: mm. yeah, well said gravitas is to me the hallmark of authentic leadership. it is that that ultimate feeling, a sense that just draws people in, much more than just a, just a presence. It's from a leadership perspective. Leaders with gravitas are leaders that people love to follow. What is gravitas to you?
2: I suppose um, when you reach a certain stage in your life, and some people clearly reach it a lot earlier than others, um, where you've seen what you're doing as, as, as being successful, when you've successfully led teams, when you've got a certain amount of experience, when you've learned how to deal with different cultures, when you have a certain confidence, one side, um, where you're able to communicate and project yourself, create empathy with people on another, and, and where you're where i would say that you've got solid foundations and this is a point where often often i think many 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 leaders come unstuck uh but if you've got deep foundations that you can always go back and, and rely on somehow there's the, the, somewhere within those three ingredients plus a, plus a little a sprinkle of je ne sais quoi um that's probably where the, the the gravitas comes from and there are not that many people that achieve it to be honest we know the we know the giants of our industry uh, and there are not that many of them. Uh, and uh, every now and again, some of those giants demonstrate their own vulnerability and uh, you find out that their foundations aren't that, that strong anyway. Um, so it's a, it's a rare gift for sure. Uh, and I come back to my, my two favorite characters of Napoleon and uh, Wellington in that respect.
1: Mm, yeah, well said, well said. Talk to us about... Vision, vision and purpose. We've touched on it somewhat, but how do you get a team behind your vision? What are some of the actual things that you do as a CEO, as a leader in a major organization, how do you get people behind that vision? It's much more, we all know it's much more than producing a PowerPoint and putting a poster on the wall. How do you actually do that?
2: Yeah, it's all about belief and inspiration, isn't it? Um, I often used to refer to it as as the battle standard, the, the rallying around the flag. Um, I mean, at the end, the, the the goal that you you've pointed the team towards needs to be very clear. Needs to be simple to articulate. Um, you know, in a in a big organisation, not everybody is as well informed as you'd like. Not everybody is, is as smart at understanding things as you'd like. Not everybody has the same level of interest, but everybody will, will understand a simple message well communicated. So if you've got that simple message well communicated and you have, you're able to demonstrate a, a delivery mechanism that shows it's possible. In other words, people can believe in the vision. Um, and if you're able to point out perhaps the the things that are difficult about it, you know, you've already, you've already pointed out the bear traps and the things to be avoided. And if that, that vision is, is something that you can be proud of as a team. Um, I think that's how, I mean, that, that, that's broadly how you, how, how you get there. Now, some people do that naturally. Some people are, are very, very good at talking about what they want to go and what they want to create. Um, and I'm thinking of people like you know Elon Musk, for example. Um, some people, it's not quite so natural. Um, through, through my career, um, obviously, you can tell heavily influenced in Japan, uh, and in this case, I did my PhD on, on, on this particular subject, is the use of something called a hoshinkanri which directly translated means policy deployment. But if you want, it takes, a, it takes a vision or a policy and it breaks it down into strategy and tactic and gets down to the, individual, the individual's annual objectives if you want to go that deep. Um, and I think what it does is it structures that story, whether it's a, whether it's a, a transformational story or an equity story. Basically, it puts the bones around that, the delivery mechanism. So, for for example, in the case of Aston Martin, it was the the second century plan, seven cars in seven years. Um, in in the case of, of of Nissan, it was the Nissan One Eighty. Um, in the case of the gearbox um, that I talked about, it was the uh, it, it was the R Sixty Five simultaneous engineering project. Um, but but you know, not quite so inspirational. I was much younger. But basically, that somewhere in my mind. There was a vision, a strategy to get there, and, and a bunch of things that needed to be done and I discovered this methodology of Hoshi and Canary, which helped me um, structure that for other people and helped me to explain that that vision in each of the transformations I was responsible for
1: when you once you have a vision, you have your people behind the vision. how do you keep it keep it real because we all know the higher up you go in your career, sometimes it's difficult to keep in touch with what's really going on. Now you've already talked about you're very much a supporter of management by walking around. You you know you you like to walk around and talk to people, but there are other stakeholders, right? There are suppliers, there mm-hmm. are customers. You can't get around to everybody all of the time. So how do you keep it? How do you keep it real? As a, as a CEO, as a senior executive?
2: I suppose everybody has their own particular, their own particular style. Um, certainly the worst ca- kind of transformations are the ones that only last a few weeks where someone has a very, a very good idea and goes away and hires a consultant and they come in and they make a nice PowerPoint and then they lose, uh, they lose um, patience or they lose interest. In it and it dies on the vine and I'm sure we've all been part of initiatives that, that died on the vine because you know, something like 70% of all turnaround initiatives fail anyway. Um, how do you keep it real? Well, again, I, I'll talk only for myself. Uh, I, I always, had, always have had a very large first line. So the first thing I did, for example, at, at Aston was cut out the, um, what was the COO, CFO line people so rather than having two or three people reporting to me i think i had 12 um a flat structure is another way of saying the same thing so i you know i took out two levels of management actually so get it as flat as you can means that the 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 distance between the top of the organization and the bottom of the organization is is much closer it also gives you exposure to a, a lot of different perspectives rather than filter the filtered few um and the less filtering in an organisation uh, ten- tends to be the, the more accurate understanding of what's actually going on. Um, me, I, I never ever made um, a decision in my office. Uh, you know, I had plenty of people over the years come in and, and lobby for, for a decision. And lobbying, I suppose, is fine because you're hearing one person's point of view. But I had a very very strong instinct that that you know every Tuesday, pick a day, would be my management day where my whole management team would be around the table. And any proposal or change or idea would be debated and uh, agreed in a consensual way around the whole team. Um, does two things. Well, first of all, it, it, it kicks the idea around and finds its weaknesses with people looking at things from different perspectives. Um, but perhaps as, as important as that, um, when everybody buys into an idea, you don't get the kind of passive-aggressive of, I wasn't involved, it wasn't my idea. Everybody brings their, their heart into the decision and are more likely to execute that decision than, than just whinge and moan and try and kill it from the sidelines. So that's my way. I'm, not sure. I'm sure there are many other ways, but that, that's my way.
1: When you're debating ideas as a leadership team, There's uh, sometimes a concern that people are afraid to offend the boss and may not put forward an opinion that is not in line with others. Um, how do you encourage that, uh, healthy conflict in, in a leadership team?
2: Mm. We don't do it overnight for sure, because. No matter what type of leader you are, people, people will still see you as the boss. So I think it's, some, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that's developed over time as people begin to trust you. Um, in, my, in my own sense, um, while well, you try and draw it out, especially from the quiet, quietest member. There's actually a really interesting textbook called Quiet, which I would uh, advocate anybody to read, but it's about looking for the quietest member in your, in your team, because quite often they're deep. Um, and it's worth listening to their opinions, but, but let, make sure everybody has, um, has the opportunities to say something and, and obviously draw that out. Don't ridicule anybody that comes up with something. Um, again, to my own style, uh, it's an asset or a liability. I don't know, but, but, um, I regularly use the, the, um, tactic of humor to try and break ice, um, make a, make a a joke about myself um just just to release the tension a bit you, you know you know uh what english humor's like or british humor's like so it's a bit difficult to understand doesn't always translate into a multicultural uh sense but right. but but by <laughs> being by being a little bit light-hearted and again maybe showing a little bit of vulnerability um eases the tension in the room and people will tend to uh, tend to trust you more and of course you must never ever break a trust uh, if you do that once, you've broken it forever. So you have to be seen with integrity.
1: Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. When Once people know that you as a leader are not going to make a decision be, just purely based on the last person that left your office, that it's going to be a team decision, you're going to make these decisions together, because I, I think sometimes that you see leaders where they're only... They're only as good. The decisions are only as good as the last person that left their office, and they don't get both sides.
2: I think you, anyway you end up with better decisions. I mean, I give you an example because it's close to your heart. But um, it was a very 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 long meeting that decided to to put the factory, the Aston Martin factory into into Wales. There was a competing a competing place uh, and. Going into that meeting, I would have said it was, it was probably leaning towards the other place because everybody had got the perception that that was probably, that was probably maybe where the boss was looking for or, or was probably the favored by most people. So people were sort of, I suppose, thinking about, well, how could this go? Uh, and again, it was actually, it was actually Simon uh, as, as a sort of naive um, uh, marketing guy that said, well, actually, I prefer the Welsh one. And suddenly you saw the the, the 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 tumble that well, so do I. so do I. Well I think it's going and so the, the the tone of the meeting changed because you allowed you know, in this case Simon to, to stand up and, and not fear being called an idiot because he's a marketing guy, not a, not an industrial management guy, you know, and, and it was the best decision and, and it was the best decision because it was the collective decision and the collective decision that it meant it took into account Everybody's point of view, and by the way, it was a hundred uh, percent consensual decision that, that 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 led to Aston putting that factory in Wales.
1: That's great, and I love that that it was the marketing guy. You know, like you say, it wasn't the maybe the the ops guy or somebody that you would would expect to have heavy heavy influence on this decision. So that shows that yeah. people he must have felt safe in coming forward with his idea.
2: Well, hopefully it meant that everybody everybody felt that their, they, they, that their view was valued.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Let's take a turn and talk more about personal leadership, leadership of your life. So I love to ask this question because I'm intrigued. How do you start your day?
2: <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> <laughs> um well, I um, <laughs> I I get up and shower. Um, I suppose as I come downstairs, regrettably, I, I I always take a quick check of my iPhone um, just to see if there's anything majorly gone wrong overnight. Um, but interestingly, I, I have always had uh, a kind of rule not to not to take it to my bedroom, so I don't sleep with my iPhone. That's just a a personal thing that 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 six hours is mine. Um, and I need to rest. Um, I never go out without having breakfast, no matter, uh, whether it's five o'clock or seven o'clock, I, I always grab something cause I, I'm, I think much better with, uh, with something in inside of me. And then when I can, I mean, I, I I've always tried to pick my, my place where I live to be 30, 40, 50 minutes away from my workplace. I'm a petrol head. I love driving, um, and I love the the first thing in the morning that that ability to just wake myself up, enjoy the drive, perhaps listen to some music, um, and and just get my head into into the right space, um, and then then I'm at work, and then the day has started.
1: Yeah, yeah, or listen to a good podcast, right? <laughs>
2: Absolutely. <laughs> That's, don't 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 miss an opportunity to plug it.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Andy, what advice would you have to your twenty-five-year-old self today in today's environment?
2: That's an interesting one because most people ask me, "What would you? What advice would you give to your children?" Because um, my the advice that I give to my children, generally speaking, is um, you know work, work, work. Um, it doesn't, work will always trump IQ. Uh, you know, you need a certain amount of IQ, I suppose, but you also need a certain amount of EQ and you need a certain amount of work ethic. And if you're really passionate about something, uh, and you work at it, you'll almost certainly succeed. Um, which of course is the other side of things is, 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 is try and find something that you can be passionate about because you're going to spend the rest of your life working 10 hours a day at it, you might as well find something you enjoy. And that brings me back to me, I suppose, which was, I was, you know, people talk to me often about work-life balance. I'm really lucky. I've done for my whole life, my hobby. Uh, I've done something that I really, really love, which is, which is motor cars. Um, And I consider it a, privileged to to work in this industry and work with the people that i've worked with so my work and my um and in many respects my my uh hobby are are one um if i was however giving myself some some advice um it would be do some more exercise during your life uh don't don't get as fat as you've got um because it's because it because it slows you down towards the the latter part of your career and um there are all sorts of uh, nasty things you can get. So I was, uh, I was really fit as my 25-year-old self. I was playing tennis and playing squash. Um, and I probably, within that busy schedule, um, I probably should have written into my diary because it was the only way it would work for me. I should probably should have scheduled three times a week a one-hour tennis match. It, it wouldn't have made any difference ultimately, except that I'd be a lot healthier than I am now. Um, and now I'm trying to get myself back into shape, uh, but it would have been a lot easier if I was already in shape. So that would probably be the only advice, uh, I would have, um, I would give myself, I think in, in other respects, you can't, one can't look back, uh, in regret. So song about that somewhere, isn't there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't look back in anger. Um, you can't look backwards. You have got to look forwards. Uh, but as I say, if I was. And and the the advice I've just recently given to my son is 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 basically do everything you're doing, mate. Uh, enjoy what you're doing. Be inspired what you're doing. Work hard at it. Perhaps find a little bit of, a little bit of time to make sure you're fit as well.
1: Yeah, and and I agree with that. I noticed that, particularly when you start your career, it's so easy to get into that habit of just get up and go and work because you're excited about it. You get up in the morning, right? You get up, have a cup of tea and you're off, right? And, and you have to stop and, and think about your personal life, your health and what you need to really position the day to get the best out of the day. And with a view long-term that you want to be healthy. Yeah. Uh, Later on, later on in life, not only when you're young, but later on in life. And I noticed that I would say, I think I've always had some element of fitness in my life, but I really made it a priority, I would say the last 10 years. And I didn't, I didn't like it when people would schedule meetings at 630 in the morning, because that was my gym time. And then, over as I got more comfortable in my own skin, I would tell people, you know, no, I'm not available this day, right? Not explaining yep. why, because you don't have to explain all the reasons why to everybody. But I can I'm not available, and and reaching that point where I felt comfortable saying that and making a decision for me and my health and fitness, and not just automatically making every decision for work, uh, was yep. was a very freeing and empowering moment.
2: I, I would again. I, I, I you know, I. Struggle sometimes to say no to people. Um, that's why I say my way of fixing it is, is to schedule it into the diary. So you treat it in the same way as you would any other meeting. And if someone says they want a 6.30 meeting and you say, I've already, sorry, I've already got a, a meeting fixed at that time. So, so me- mentally, it's, it's blocked out and you've got a, a reason to stand behind why it's blocked out. And to some extent, if it's in your diary, same as you might go into uh, meetings that you're not particularly keen to go into, you go and do your exercise. So, so I I just, it's just, I should have done it more. I'm doing it now. Um, And, you know, I force myself now every day. uh, There's an hour where I go and do 10,000 steps. And, um, and, and fortunately I've been able to keep it up because it's scheduled in the diary.
1: That's great. Now, when you say it's scheduled in the diary, you mean it's, it's in your personal schedule for the day, or do you mean an actual physical hard diary? Do you keep a diary or a journal?
2: No, I keep a. It's a, it's a soft diary. It's um it's a Microsoft uh, okay. uh, diary. So or Outlook diary. So no, I don't uh, keep a journal. I um I, I'm a mouse of scurrying stuff away. I I'm, I religiously file everything. So, um uh, over the years, I've accumulated lots of stuff in terms of what I've done, and I, somehow, somehow I think uh, it goes back to my uh, PhD days where I think sometimes it's occasionally it's useful to look back on things, but no, I haven't written a diary. Maybe one day I'll do an autobiography. You never know.
1: Mm, You never know. Talking about looking back, let's talk about your legacy. How do you see your legacy?
2: Well, that's an interesting debate, particularly as I'm I'm evolving into an, as a new new roles at the moment. Um, I think I would answer that in two ways The way I look at my legacy, I look at it in two ways. Uh, one is I'm fortunate enough to work on product that I love, which is the car, and I can point to cars. And I've been lucky enough to to be involved in the leadership of of Hundreds, if if not close to a thousand, um, and I can mark my career by certain key key cars. Um, the nice thing about cars is they stay around an awful long time. But for example, uh, early part of my career, I led a team that that managed to um, package a catalyst into the Mini, so into Isagonus's Mini, the, the old Mini, not the new one. And that kept that product alive for a few more years where it could easily have died and gone out of existence. So I look with great affection at the Mini. In fact, you can find just here a little model of a, of a Mini, which yeah, reminds me of, 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 uh, of that particular job. Um, you know, that was my milestone at Rover, I suppose. And as I think towards Nissan, uh, cars like the Qashqai, cars uh, like the Altima. Um, big one for me is the Leaf, the first zero emission uh, car of of this generation, uh, and the impact that that helped to have, uh, along with Tesla, in terms of turning the whole market to electric. Um, in 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 recent times, I would say the, uh, the obviously the Aston Martin DBX, the first SUV made in Wales, and s- soon to be launched the Valkyrie, which is I would say the the pinnacle of internal combustion engineering. So um, those are certainly, I think, part of that, what I would call my legacy. Um, And then on the other side, what I would like to be my legacy is really about the um, education of apprentices, you know, leaving behind me the guys that I've helped create apprenticeships for, have helped to nurture um, and hopefully we we'll go, can't go on to and, and continue and perhaps be the future Andy Palmer. Um, to that end, um, I, I've established a foundation, the Palmer Foundation, which is about giving the opportunity to kids coming from deprived backgrounds, maybe inner cities, that perhaps would go or could go off the rails at, so let's say, 14 years old have a propensity towards the STEM subjects but need to be nurtured and guided and perhaps don't have that guidership from the, the father figure in their family or whatever, help them onto an apprenticeship, um, sponsor them, pay their salary in short, for the first two years. So and then at the point of 18 years old, either find a, an employer that will complete their apprenticeship or get them into the university system. The idea being that kids that may well have been passed over uh, and never considered and might well end up as, uh, as, as, you know, in gangs or whatever um, at 21 years old, they could stand shoulder to shoulder with a kid that's gone through a privileged private school and Eton education and be just as good. And, you know, those at the moment, those are small numbers. um, uh, But hopefully as the foundation grows, I, sincerely hope I can find a funding funding mechanism that, that will allow that to grow and grow and grow and that we can see British kids going through STEM subjects and, you know, who knows, have a big ambition, maybe one day internationally.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a great legacy to have. Well, I would like to thank you very much for your time today. And I have to tell you, I'm tremendously excited to see what the next chapter is for you this incredible career, but the different cultures that you have really worked in and you really, I mean, you know, you were in Japan for a long time. This wasn't just a stint or, you know, a couple of years uh, experience being a leader for a short period of time. You really understand the culture in uh, many different countries. And as you said, it's evolved your leadership style. So where you go now after this could be anywhere. I think it's very exciting and I can't wait to see what it is. So thank you again for your time today.
2: My huge pleasure. It's been, a, it's, great. it's been great fun talking to you.
1: Thank you, Andy.
2: Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at gravitasdetroit.com to find out more.